I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. How many of you have ever heard the saying or the phrase, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, I've heard that before. Well, if you haven't heard it before, it simply means this. It means that a difficult time that you're going through, that you just feel like you're in a tunnel and you're, and you're going towards the end and you can see a light. And yeah, you're, you're, you're done. You're almost finished. Well, for those of you who have positive outlooks, I mean, this can be two things. Believe me, two things. Positive outlooks, you're going, oh, we're almost done, and, and the sun is going to kiss my face when I go out. It's like a, a sun in springtime. For others of you who are like Eeyore, Eeyore's Winnie the Pooh's buddy, you know, the, the donkey who's, oh, this is not a good day. The light is a locomotive coming towards you. Well, the 20th chapter of Revelation could be considered such a chapter. For some, for those who are the people of God, for, and those who are from Old Testament saints on to the New Testament disciples, it is what they have prayed for. It is what we have prayed for. God's kingdom coming to earth. I mean, we can say amen to that. All right, God's kingdom coming to earth. A time that should and will bring joy to everyone who has longed for his appearing. Truly like sunshine on a spring day. For all the rest of mankind, one man has written, and I agree, and I quote, this passage is the most serious, sobering, and tragic passage in the whole Bible. That's the scale. That's the difference. Truly a locomotive traveling at breakneck speed on a collision course that once on that track cannot be avoided. Well, how did we get here through Revelation? I'm just going to go quickly through this. We began with the writer, John, showing us Jesus. Showing us Jesus walking among his churches, which was the, him saying, I can see what you're doing. I'm here. I am judging you. I'm discipling you. I'm helping you. I'm here. In chapters 4 and 5, we saw the throne room of heaven. We sang about that earlier. The rainbow, this, the, the lightning, the thunder. We saw the throne room and the one sitting on the throne. And we saw Jesus, the Lamb, Go, as standing as if he had been slain, taking the seven-sealed seven scroll, opening it up. Once we saw him opening the scrolls, we saw judgment begin to fall. This begins the seven-year period on the, on the earth, which is called the tribulation. The last three and a half years is called the great tribulation, but the first three and a half are tribulation. This, once the seventh seal was opened, the seven trumpet judgments began. Each one 
more severe than the other. Everything coming down upon the earth, God sending plagues, but yet mercy. Because if he, he could have destroyed the entire earth, but yet he calls people to come to him. With the seventh seal, we are introduced to the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon, the unholy trinity, so to speak. And these are the major players in this time. And they all serve Satan, who is the dragon. Satan, the arch enemy of God and his people. This trio, they will be politically and religiously in control during the final seven years on earth. But yet we know God is in control. He is allowing this. After the seventh trumpet blew, which occurs sometime during the last three and a half years, also known as the Great Tribulation, which Daniel spoke of, the final judgments fall on earth. They're the bowl judgments. And angels, one after the other, pour bowl after bowl after bowl and just totally destroy the earth. And last week, when the seventh bowl was finally poured, we saw in chapter 19 the rider on a white horse. Jesus coming in. The rider on a white horse signifying victory. What did he do? He captured the beast. He captured the false prophet. He threw them into the lake of fire and defeated the armies that had been gathered to fight against him. For all of us who have been on this journey, it's been one that has sometimes been very heavy and very dark. I'm speaking from experience. But we now come to the end of the tunnel. Only one thing remains. Because all humans who have opposed Christ have been destroyed. They were destroyed in chapter 19. On the hills of Israel, on the hills of Jerusalem, they were wiped out. And don't say that joyfully, but they're gone. The beast and the false prophet, they've been judged. But Satan, known as the dragon, has yet to be dealt with. And that's where we begin chapter 20, which is a chapter of greats. That's the title of the message today, a chapter of greats. And in it, we have a great chain, a great reign, that rhymes if you don't, don't, haven't noticed, a great revolt, and finally, the great white throne. Out of respect to the word of God, would you stand with me? And please follow along as I read the first three verses of Revelations chapter 20. God's word declares... Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Father, I pray this morning that we hear 
what the Spirit has to say to us. May we understand the great victory that you have won. May we understand that those who are in Christ, those who are in Jesus, who have been washed, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, will reign with him. Lord God, we thank you. But Lord, again, if there, are in, if there are any within the sound of my voice who have not turned to Jesus and truly repented of their sins and truly have embraced his offer of eternal life, may they do so this morning. Lord God, may you bless the reading of your word this morning. Amen. You may be seated. The writer John, who has been privy to visions given to him as he has been imprisoned on the island of Patmos. He was, he was imprisoned. He was taken from his home in Ephesus and moved to a desolate island, which was a Roman penal colony. He now sees the great chain, the great chain. But before we get to that, we also see something else. And it's one of the most debatable topics, excuse me, among believers in the scriptures. When I looked at this passage this week, there is so much here. So I'm just, I'm going to really bear down on a few things this morning. And I'm going to really talk about something that I don't think we as believers understand as well as we should. And... I believe many people are confused about it. In fact, I was talking to a man today that he said that he was talking to his young daughter this, this week, and she said, what if heaven's boring? And I said, I understand that statement because we don't understand what actually awaits us, what God has promised in his word, promised so we're going to talk about a, the most, one of the most debatable topics that believers, that believers argue about in Scripture. And that, believe, that debatable topic I'm talking about is the millennium. Not a millennial. Don't get angry there. A millennium. The millennium. Now, we're going to take some time, but the word actually comes from two Latin words, all right, mille, which means a thousand, and annum, which means a year, thousand years. Before we go forward, we need to understand what this debate is all about because there are people on all sides of the debate. Well, almost like concerning the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church, you have different different ideas about what that is. We have pre-tribulational rapture, which is, Christ is going to come and call his church and those who have died are dead in Christ before the tribulation begins. That's what I believe and that's what I've been teaching from. But we also have those who believe in a mid-tribulational rapture, which they are called mid-tribbers, and they think that Christ is coming back before the great tribulation, the great, the last three and a half years begin. And then they'll be gathered with him forever. Well, post-trib, we have post-trib. Christ is coming after the tribulation's done, everyone's going through it, and at, when, it, 
when it ends, when he comes, he is going to take those who are his, and we're going to live with him forever. These are non-essential issues. The only thing that we have to know is and believe, Jesus is coming back. All right? So we understand that. Salvifically, it doesn't matter. It does matter, I believe, but the way you, way you look at it and the way you'll live, well, the same is true concerning the millennium. Now, what you believe about the millennium, it shouldn't affect our, the way we handle other believers or how we interact with them, our fellowship with them. Again, it's not an essential doctrine for salvation. It doesn't matter what you believe in the millennium, although I think it does. One of the early theologians of the church named Augustine said this, and I quote, he said, on essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity, charity meaning love. So concerning the millennium, there are three major views that have been held throughout church history. Now, if you have something, go ahead and write it down. You can be like Nicole, who was smart last week. She's going to get her phone, and she's going to just take a picture of what this means. So first is all millennial, millennialism. I can speak this. I can. The prefix A means not. Ah, millennialism. They believe that the thousand years that are spoke of in the Scriptures, in fact, six times they are spoken of in Revelation 20, they're simply symbolic. Now, this position is taken by those who believe that there will be no literal, physical, earthly kingdom of God. They believe that God is ruling from heaven, which he is, has control over heaven, but they believe that there is only a spiritual kingdom and that believers are in the kingdom age now, which began at Christ's first coming and will end at his second coming. We probably heard this, well, Jesus is reigning in my heart, and that's what their kingdom age is. An all-millennialist also believes that the conflict between good and evil will intensify towards the end of the present age, and the increasing persecution will culminate in the appearance of the Antichrist and the second coming of Christ. Then, after that, all humanity will be resurrected, judged, and then ushered into the eternal state. All-millennialism. No millennialism. No millennium. Next is post-millennialism. The prefix post meaning after. All right, what a post-millennialist believes, Christ will return after the millennium. Those who hold this view believe that the world will continue to improve. Now, many people held this view. This has been popular since... I would say probably the third or the fourth century on, and it was really, really, once the Industrial Revolution took hold, they said, oh, this, this is good, this is getting better, this is getting better. But then World War I happened, and then World War II, and that bubble, I could say, was probably burst. But nevertheless, a post-millennialist believes that the majority of mankind turns to Christ and is saved. And, will then and he will then establish his kingdom. At the time when the world begins to turn in mass to Christ is when the millennium begins. So we can't tell when the millennium begins or, or it ends. We know when it ends is when Jesus comes. Jesus is not physically present during this time. He is, 
He is believed to be the primary agent and the cause of the church's expansion and influence. But when Jesus returns to earth, the dead are raised, separated, and enter into the eternal state. The last major view and the one that I hold and teach from is called pre-millennialism. Pre means before, which means Christ comes before the great tribulation or the, before the great tribulation happens before the millennium, excuse me. The present age will climax with a period of great tribulation and the second coming of Christ. Jesus will establish an earthly kingdom and rule it for a literal thousand-year period. And at the time of his return, believers will be resurrected and reign with him, and Satan will be bound in the abyss, also known as the bottomless pit, where he will be held, just what, as we read earlier, for a literal thousand years, not able to influence the nations, not able to be an influence at all during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released from the abyss, gather all the remaining unbelievers who are still, some who are still on the earth, and battle against Christ, but they will decisively be defeated. All unbelievers from all time will then be resurrected, judged according to their deeds, and then will enter into the eternal state. In the case for premillennialism, so many historians and respected historians at that have the view that premillennialism was not contradicted by a single orthodox, now I will put that, an orthodox church father until the beginning of the third century. To name a few who believed in the premillennialism, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, and Polycarp were premillennial. Incidentally, Polycarp was a disciple of John who wrote the book of Revelation. In the second century, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, they were premillennial. And Irenaeus, incidentally, was under the tutelage of Polycarp. Can you see how things follow down? Who were tutored by the apostle John. Again, Irenaeus warned against allegorizing and spiritualizing. Don't do that with the Old Testament kingdom prophecies. They begin, oh, it's, it's just a story. It's just a picture. No, it's real words. God is promising these things. Tertullian was another in the second century, and there are several others in the third century. Not into the third century when the Greek church, was, which was influenced by the belief that physical things were evil. They believed, well, if the body is evil, we just need to be spiritual. We'd be, all be okay. Is that really true? Because the last time I checked things, I, I think things that are terrible. And I don't act on them, but sometimes I really think some things... And, that's, that's not right. All right, so when evil, they don't believe that, that evil and then it's a belief in a literal kingdom then was, no, that's, that can't be right. It fell out of favor. Church, all this to say, I believe it does matter what we believe regarding the Scriptures. And I truly believe that what the Scriptures say can be taken at face value. They can be taken in a literal way unless it's plainly teaching a spiritual concept. Case in point, 
when Jesus declared in, in Matthew 23, he said, How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. God in the Old Testament is pictured as a, as a hen gathering his, his chicks. God is not a chicken. It's a picture. We understand that it's an analogy, and it shows his care and concerning for his people. The Scriptures declare this in 2 Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Why is this so important? because of the severity of this passage. In chapter 19, Jesus has just come to earth the second time, and he cleaned house. My words, not the Scripture's words. He cleaned house. It's not just a spiritual analogy. It's the culmination of everything from what the Old Testament prophets have promised and written throughout the centuries. It's what he promised. And yes, we have to pray. We have to look at Scripture. We have to take time to understand what's being said. But this is the type of lens we must look at Scriptures through. Literal, grammatical, historical. That's the way it's written. And for a thousand years of peace and tranquility to take place, Satan has to be removed. He must not be allowed to deceive the nations any longer. And the picture that John sees in the first three verses is simply this. The dragon seized. He's bound with a chain, thrown into a bottomless pit, and that pit is shut, locked, and sealed well, I've never seen a, bottom, a pit that's bottomless. What's it picture? It pictures something where you're not going to be able to get out. You're falling. I've never seen a, a chain be able to chain a spirit being because a spirit doesn't have a body, but yet a chain is said to have chained him up. What wouldn't have been locked up been good enough? No. It's a picture of total isolation with no access to the Savior's world for how long? A thousand years. Literally, a thousand years. Now, if John thought that if he could have used the term, he'll be locked up for a long time, because he uses for a short time later in the passage. Church, what this is is a symbolic picture with a definite time frame. The truth is, no satanic influence during this, this time. It's, it's <laughs> we have satanic influence. Do you think that Satan is locked up? 
1 Peter 5.8 declares, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's a very real entity. But he'll be locked up. We've seen the great chain, now the great reign. Well, who will reign? That's a legitimate question, don't you think? Well, let's find out. Well, look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Hmm. The authority to judge. Well, I think we're going to have to look through the promises of Scripture on this one. The first name that comes to mind, Jesus. And when the angel came and he was speaking to Mary, before Jesus was born, before Jesus was even conceived in her womb, the angel said this about Jesus. He will be a great, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. All right. He's also promised us throughout the whole in, in the scriptures. He says that I will judge. The Father has given me the ability and the, the right to judge. Well, who else has promised to be able to judge? According to Daniel 7, Old Testament saints, in Matthew 19, 28, the 12 apostles, they were promised by Christ in the new world, you are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, do you think that they were expecting a symbolized reign? No, these men were on earth and they were promised by God. What's going to happen? You're going to reign. In 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Timothy 2, in the New Testament, believers are promised that they will reign with him. Do you understand something? Do you know that you're a New Testament believer? That you are part of that little bit of Scripture right there? You, Jeanette, you're going to reign. How many cities? I don't know. They'll probably give me shafter. Yuck. <laughs> but I digress. <sighs> Jesus said this in chapters 2, verse 26, and chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus promises these will rule with him, the one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This isn't spiritual, spiritualized reign, men and women. This is one last passage and then we'll move forward. This comes from Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Case settled. They will reign on the earth. Not spiritually, but physically. All of these have been promised to rule with Christ, but there's one more group continuing in verse 4. 
Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, for those who say that this must be talking about a spiritual resurrection if they're coming to life, they're in heaven. They came from the earth. They were believers. They've already been raised spiritually. They're the same ones in chapter 6 who asked, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They've already become alive spiritually. But why did John focus on the martyrs? Boost Fanning writes, and I quote, he says, because he wanted to emphasize the costly fidelity even to the point of death if necessary. It is the pathway to glory and expectation, a pathway that Christ exemplified. In this coming regime change, faithfulness will be worth it in the end. Be faithful. Be faithful. Again, a physical, bodily resurrection and the promise of reigning on the earth. What a day this will be. This is exciting stuff. But there's another group. A group of human beings. The unrighteous. Verse 5 tells us the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And we'll see their fate in verse 12 and following. But for God's faithful people throughout the ages, this is the first resurrection. It's not confined to a single day or an hour. It's the, resur- it's, it's, it's the first. It encompasses first Jesus's. Why was it important that Jesus is resurrected? We hear it all the time at a funeral. Because because he lives, we'll live. He was the first. He was the first. And now at the beginning of the, of the millennium, also oh, I'm sorry, I, I passed this up. Those who were resurrected at the rapture in 1 first, first Thessalonians 4, those who are dead, they'll rise first. They get a jump on us. But those who are alive... We will go and meet Christ in the air and we'll forever be with the Lord. That's the resurrection as well. Now here in chapter 20, the resurrection who were the dead in Christ and those who are alive, at the, they're, they're resurrected. The Old Testament saints are resurrected. It's a big party. Don't take that. No, I'm not saying that in a bad way. It is a joyous party. And we're blessed. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says so. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Speaking of the thousand-year millennium, let me just speak a little bit longer about that. Why is it important? An eminent scholar gives us five reasons. Why is the millennium important? Why is a spiritual, a spiritual, yes, a physical, real, ruling and reigning millennium, why is it important? It provides the proper context for God's vindication and reward of the martyrs and the faithful Christians throughout time. It is their reward. I gave you everything, God. I gave you everything, Jesus. Reign with me. You gave your life physically. I'll give your life physically back, and I will pay you in spades. Second, it confirms the goodness of creation and of God as creator, Establishing a messianic rule over this world of woe, even prior to its ultimate recreation, shows how God is unwilling to abandon his universe to the evil that corrupted it. Instead, he will judge those who have, def who have defiled it and restore righteousness and peace in the very real world of history, through politics, through economics that was previously under a curse. Satan ruined it. We ruined it in the, in the fall, when they, they fell in Genesis. Why would not God bring it back? Why would he not bring a physical, real earth back? Third, this is my favorite. The millennium demonstrates the sovereignty of God and his fidelity to the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, and through them to Israel and the world. God keeps his promises. And the Lord's word through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32 declares with ironclad certainty the divine promise to restore Israel to her land and be a blessing. A ironclad promise. All the spiritual and earthly forces of evil cannot stand against God's power to defeat them and to accomplish his purposes in this world. God wins. Fourth, as we will see in the next verses, the perverse and paradoxical rebellion at the end of the thousand years against Christ's perfect reign demonstrates God's righteousness in judging human sin and ultimately removing evil completely from his creation. And finally, the fifth. Why do we have a millennium? Why does it make sense? It serves to motivate and direct human action in this and the present because the reward is great. We get things. We're promised I want some of that promise. And when I'm tempted, maybe not to, oh, I don't, oh, this, this looks so good. Nope. God promises that you will reign with him. All right. Gives me reason. We've witnessed the great chain, look forward to a great reign, and now we see 
human depravity and satanic evil fully displayed in the great revolt. Now, I know you're asking this question. How is the earth going to be repopulated in the thousand years? Because Christ said one thing. It's not going to be through us. All right? There's not, there's not marriage in heaven. For some of you, that's a good thing. For some of us, man, I, I kind of want to be married to my wife. Nope, no marriage in heaven. So if there's no marriage in heaven, there's not going to be any procreation there. Not from those who have been raised, resurrected, or gone to see Christ first. Now, there are a couple groups of people who make it through the end. There will be believers who are hiding out, who are hiding out in plain sight, who are hiding out underground, and they will be gathered from the four corners of the earth. And when Christ comes back, they will be a part of that thousand years. Do we not remember? Remember in uh, Revelation, I believe it was Revelation 11, when the great earthquake, when, after the two witnesses were killed, and the great earthquake came, and then all of a sudden, there was a group of Jews in Jerusalem that gave God glory, and then they were taken, and they were hidden in the wilderness. Those people will be a part of the millennium too. They have not been changed. They're, they're believers, but they make it through. Now, you go, that doesn't seem like that many people to repopulate the earth. Well, do you know that there will be no war? There will be peace. There will be perfect reign from Jesus himself and from those who are in. So a perfect government. Boy, that's going to that's gonna ruin uh, basically Facebook, isn't it? No one can complain about the government. We'll flourish. Isaiah wrote of this time. Just think about this time. Isaiah said, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on an adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the waters over the sea. And that day, the root of Jesse, who is the root of Jesse? That is Jesus the son of David, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that environment, with no really sickness going on, booming. Population, booming. But... But even in a perfect environment, people rebel. 
I hope this, this gives some of us who have children who have wandered away and we look and say, what have I done? I thought I did my best to raise a child and, and I called on God to help and, and they're, they've run away. Even in a perfect environment, people rebel. And even though each of these people's ancestors were believers, each one of them carried with them things that are called a sin nature. Their first father, Adam, he rebelled and it was still original sin inside of them. They still need a savior. In the millennium, those who are, have come in it, who have lived through it, or who began to live in the millennium, they need a savior. So what does God do? God uses Satan to gather those rebels one more time to again show that Satan will not be reformed or rehabilitated. He's been in prison for a thousand years and he comes out and he does the same thing again. And apart from grace and the righteousness provided by Christ alone, we see too that mankind is totally corrupt. Verse 7, and when the thousand years were ended or are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Again, that just means from the entirety, from the east, the west, the north, and the south. And their leaders are given symbolic names, Gog and Magog, enemies from Israel's past, we see this in Ezekiel 38 and 39. This is not the same battle. Many believe that this is the same battle. It is not what happened a thousand years earlier. Well, Gog and Magog, they gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, uncountable. It seems to be uncountable. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Just as it had happened 1,000 years earlier, this army is destroyed. This army is destroyed in the same way as Sodom and Gomorrah met their end. Fiery judgment. By fire, they are judged. And it wasn't even a battle, but it was like an execution. The wicked... It's ironic that Satan's minions are consumed and lost their lives by the fires from heaven. And now Satan himself is consumed by the fires of hell. I'm not sorry about that. Verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Not for a short time, not for even a long time, 
but forever. Now notice the truth from the scriptures here. Satan isn't the king of hell. He's not even the ruler. He's not even a governor. He's not even a mayor. He's not even the mayor of Shafter. He's just another tormented inmate. Have you ever been asked this question before? If God could or would do something about evil, why hasn't he? The atheist or the agnostic's argument goes on. They say, if God is all good, he would destroy evil. If God is all powerful, he could destroy evil. But evil is not destroyed, and since that is so, there is no such God. It's the argument. The saint's response. If God is all good, he would destroy evil. If God is all-powerful, he can defeat evil. And evil is not yet defeated. Therefore, God can and will one day defeat evil. And this is that great day. Evil is done. Toast. Whatever fire else you want to put. Prophesied since Genesis 3, when the seed... The seed of the woman will crush his head. It is completely crushed. Satan, he was first kicked out of heaven because of pride. We saw that in Job. Job showed that picture. And Ezekiel showed that picture. And Isaiah showed that picture. Pride kicked him out of heaven. Then in Revelation 12, 9, he was removed from heaven. He couldn't even go back into heaven and talk to God. He and his angels came down and they just terrorized the earth because they knew their time was short. And in verse 2 of chapter 20, he's cast into the abyss. Can you see it? The slide, boom, 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 cast into the abyss. And now he's thrown into the lake of fire where the other members of the infernal trinity reside. Now John's witnesses... John witnesses the last of the great things in this chapter. The end of the thousand years brings us to the end of the world as we know it. And it brings us to the great white throne. Before the ultimate renewal of the earth takes place and the fate of the ungodly, it must be settled. Please understand this. Everyone will be raised. Every single person who has ever lived will be raised. All will stand before God in some way or another. Now remember, what did the scriptures just tell us earlier? Those who are a part of the first resurrection will be what? Blessed. Blessed. And all that are a part of this resurrection are damned. I had a professor in seminary, and it shocked me when he said this, but I understand it. They will be God damned. God will damn them. 
harsh words. Now, don't confuse the great white throne with the Bema seat of Christ. Believers, we will stand before Christ and we will be judged for the works that we have done and we will be rewarded for the works that we have done in Christ's name. Those who are in Christ, what is it? We will never be condemned because you will not be condemned if you're in Christ. But those, what what awaits those who have died opposing God in his Christ only could be described as this. It's a locomotive heading straight down a track and it's already in the tunnel and you cannot get away from it. It will smash you. That's as harsh as I can possibly be. That's what awaits those who do not come to Christ. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. It was great because of the majesty of the throne, and it was white because of its purity. It goes without saying that every time, every, the one sitting on the throne has been God Almighty, but this time it has to be Jesus. Why? Because the Father has given him the ability and the right to judge. He's given all authority to his son to judge. So it's the lamb here. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. There's no place to hide. There's no place to even turn away. There's no excuses here. No grounds of complaint will be heard. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. They had been raised, just as Daniel had said. From all walks of life, life, from the greatest to the smallest, from tall to small, the books were opened. There's nothing you can say. They can't even say the devil made me do it. The books were opened. There's no hearsay. The books are open. It's all for them to see, and it's all for the Lamb to read. Everything that was done, thought or not done, is written in these books. And everyone is judged according to God's standards. What are God's standards? Perfection. Perfection. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. This book belongs to the Lamb. And all who have turned to him are written, their names have been written in this book, have been written in here. And the book, it's it's almost a book of citizenry. If you're a part of the kingdom of God, your name is in that book. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And the sea, the sea was just only, it's considered, it's got to be the hardest place for someone to find a body in. The sea's massive. I'm going to be very harsh here. When a body is dumped in the ocean, it rots. And then fish eat it. And then fish go everywhere. I'm trying to get the, the picture here. Even they are brought up 
They're given. The sea gave up its dead. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. These are places that house the dead. This is the grave. They're considered places that souls are being held for judgment. Jesus taught this. He said that these are places of conscious punishment before someone's eternal destination. There's no reincarnation. There's no annihilation. Just condemnation. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The degrees of punishment will be different. But each sinner will receive what is due. The just sentence, death and Hades go out of existence. You're going, wait, what? Death and Hades go out of existence. Why? Because in the new heavens and the new earth, there'll be no sin. If there's no sin, there's no death. There is no need for death in Hades. There is no need for death in Hades to house the, these people, to house these lost souls anymore. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The fearful, unending truth. Those who are not in Christ will have to face the wrath of God upon them forever. They will be separated from his presence, but never separated from the punishment that is due. If this does not make you heavy for those who are lost. I don't know if you're alive. Why hell? Why the lake of fire? It's a witness to God's righteous character. He must judge sin. Hell is a witness to man's responsibility. We are culpable for our actions. Hell is also a witness to the awfulness of sin. We tend to downplay sin, but it is awful. It cost Jesus his life. If we understood how wretched sin is, we'd understand why a place like hell exists. And because God is holy, he will not lower his standards or alter his requirements. Hear me and I'll close. Because of sin, we incur guilt. It's our wages, so to speak. It's what we're owed 
And we must be punished for that rebellion. And punishment, the punishment is condemnation. For the one who has trusted Christ, the one who has believed what Jesus did, they will not be condemned ever. Because why? Because Jesus bore the guilt on the cross that we deserved, that I deserved, that you deserve. He took it. He took the wrath of God. He took the hell. He took our hell. Sinners who reject Christ will face him, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And those who reject him will hear this, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. We come back to where we started this morning. Is it symbolism or is it reality? If it indeed is a symbol, the reality is that it represents something only more horrifying and painful. Turn to Jesus for life and praise him for saving your life. Lord God, as we finish with this passage, I praise you for your holiness. Lord God, I praise you for Jesus. Thank you that you have made a way that we do not have to face this condemnation. You are holy. May we understand that. May we tell others the truth. And the reality that punishment awaits those who do not turn to the God who made them. May we lovingly give truth, your truth, to our friends, to our family, and to those who need you. I pray these things in Christ's name, amen.